Now on RT Radio 1, Arts Tonight, presented by Vincent Woods. Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight. It for Others and Other Works, Turner Prize winner Duncan Campbell. Artist Duncan Campbell was born and brought up in Dublin and lives in Glasgow. Recent winner of the Turner Prize, four of his films are currently on show at the Irish Museum of Modern Art in Kilmainham in Dublin. Here's an extract from one of those, Arbeit, inspired by the life and work of German post-war economist Hans Tietmeier. Dear you, <coughs> as a Westphalian oak, I think of you, dear Johannes, specimen of the orientations of truth and strength that that far-famed tree is said to signify. Above even these stout qualities, the oak is said to be the embodiment of perseverance, or perhaps, in your case, some might use the expression stubbornness. But that, too, is part of the Westphalian heritage you cherish so dearly, a hidden connection and correspondence you cannot deny. In Munsterland Earth you have your roots, but even the most promising sapling would remain stunted without suitable soil and environment. These last prerequisites in the case of your upbringing have not been wanting. The modest, orderly home environment provided by your father, a municipal treasury inspector, the sensitive guidance of spiritual counsellor Alfonso, the upright community to which you deferred. An extract there from Duncan Campbell's film Arbeit, currently on show at IMA in Dublin. Sarah Glenny, director of IMA and a long-time admirer and supporter of Duncan Campbell's work, told me when and where she first came into contact with his art. Probably as far back as Manifesta in 2004, it was in San Sebastian. But it was that sort of thing of knowing his name because of the connection with Belfast, but not having seen the work probably crazy to have to be in Spain to see somebody's work when he was at the time living in Belfast but that's often how it goes so I think from then and just kind of growing awareness of people talking about his work and then I first worked with him when I was at the Irish Film Institute and we had a special program that we ran looking at the relationship between art and film and we screened Bernadette And the response to the film in a cinema context and in the context of that event was extraordinary with that really concentrated viewing rather than in the background in a group show context or in a gallery context where you couldn't hear it properly or you couldn't really appreciate it. And there was this incredibly focused screening. Um, So when I started here, I thought, well, that would be a great opportunity to platform his work. Because also the thing that was very interesting when we did show Bernadette was how little his work was known in Dublin. Although people had heard about it, it hadn't been widely seen He seems to be one of the artists who manages to interrogate his medium at the same time as presenting pieces with really strong narratives and the more you look, the deeper things seem to be. He really tries to make his work about something that isn't always there at the moment in the contemporary art world and that really resonated with me and as well coming from having been working in film and that gave me a kind of a greater appreciation of 
how he was interrogating the medium of documentary filmmaking and how his work sat against those kind of structures and modes of production. But I think at the core is a desire to really try and understand something in his work, not explain it, not find the answers, not make a definitive statement about it, but in the process of making his work, really try and understand the things that are relevant to all our lives and very much about the things that affect us. You mentioned the response to Bernadette when it was shown in the IFI, and I think you've again here at IMA, you've noted a very particular response to that film. Yeah, I think, I mean, what was very interesting when we showed it at the IFI was uh, Nell McCafferty was in the audience. When we said we were screening Bernadette, she was very funny. She said, I thought you were going to be screening a film about St. Bernadette. I didn't know it was about my friend. And so poor Duncan was actually quite intimidated. And But she was really blown away by it. But I think it was that thing of the, the material that he was using was very real to people, you know, particularly in that screening that we had in the IFI. There were people in the audience who remembered seeing that news footage and they remembered that time. And it is such extraordinary emotive and evocative footage. And we've seen that very strongly here. I mean, I did a guided tour in the opening weekend and had to sort of hand it over to the floor because there were people in that group for whom that period was something they'd lived through, that they had very strong opinions, much more experience than I have. And so it was actually turned into one of those great discussions where the audience is really adding to the the reading and the work, but also then from a younger generation, a real interest in it, because there is still a sense that these are issues that are still resonant now. And she... You know, she's one of those figures that people have heard about. They don't see so much of her now, and they may have heard their parents talking about it. So I think it, it's just that clear sense of connection and ownership, um, which is really what that work is about, is, you know, how the media projected these ideas and people projected their own hopes and ideals and politics onto this figure and how that was reflected in how she was portrayed in the media. It's not so much a portrait of Bernadette as how we've all seen Bernadette. What's your own response to the piece that won the Turner? Of all Duncan's work, but that work in particular, you really do need to see it from beginning to end, and that's one of the challenges of presenting Duncan's work in a gallery, is how you can create a situation where that is facilitated and helped. And that's one of the things we really thought about in terms of the exhibition. It's very funny because after the Tony Prize, I was sort of doing a couple of media interviews and asked to describe the work, and it is about the hardest work to describe in two sentences and the descriptions that kept on coming out in the news that just completely morphed. It is so layered, but it's actually very, very funny. And when you try and describe it, it sounds terribly dry and academic, but there's huge humour in it and also... You know, some really striking passages for me, that passage around the commodification of the image of the IRA soldier and how that kind of ended up on the the Chinese stockings. And then that sort of great section at the end, which is really what is the value of this work itself. So the description of it as a, a film that is about value that is placed upon African objects as they enter into Western society is a little misleading. But I think it's an incredibly rich work, a very ambitious work. When viewed in its entirety becomes much clearer in terms of the playfulness of it, the the questioning, the lack of sort of dogmatic position within it. And it is something that does benefit from from several viewings. Where does Duncan Campbell belong in terms of international trends and how we see and consume image? There are a lot of artists working within this format of the essay film of a kind of combination of archive footage and, and filmed image combined with a narrative. 
film is an incredibly dominant medium in contemporary culture, so it is not surprising that an interrogation of film as a medium is a very big part of contemporary art because it is a very big part of people's cultural bringing up and heritage. I mean, you know, we are now dealing with a generation of, of artists who've completely grown up with film, with television, and and so an interrogation of that and a a use of the moving image is inevitable. But you hear again and again people saying, oh, we need to see the end of video art or video art's been a very bad thing. And yes, there has been some very bad video art. And we've all sort of experienced these great big group exhibitions where we're expected to sit in a darkened room and watch hours and hours of film. And, and that doesn't work. And that is, is a sort of challenge in contemporary art. But I think it's very reductive to kind of reduce that down to the medium. There are some people who have something intelligent and worthwhile to say with the medium of film in the same way that there are some people who have something intelligent and useful to say the medium of painting. And equally, there are other people for whom it's, it isn't a, perhaps such an important endeavour. But I think one of the key questions that came to him following the Turner Prize is when you're going to make a feature film. Like that's seen as, after the sort of Steve McQueen, Sam Taylor Wood, Gillian Waring model, that's seen as the next phase for an artist working with film, as if that's the sort of next grown-up phase. And, you know, he has said and it'd be something he'd be interested in doing but it's not necessarily the next thing seeing the work here in Emma uh, there seemed to be almost something slightly confined the sound is terrific there's a great clarity in the screen there is a challenge it has to be said in in sitting on a, on a bench without a back uh, and watching something for for an hour you know and I just wonder is that something that you're conscious of mm. as the curator as well of how an audience physically engages with a piece you know and, and how we have to view something in the context of a gallery very and we should have had chairs with backs because one of the things I talked to about with Duncan from the beginning was what did he want this show to achieve and for some artists that's a new work other artists that's a book or you know and for Duncan it was really about how his work can function in a gallery and really getting that right so our investment and our time and our thinking really went into the installation and the, what we've tried to create is an environment and an exhibition which encourages people over quite a long period of time because, it's, you know, the show opened in November and it's running right through to March. So it's a long, long exhibition that people see one in one afternoon, come back several weeks later and see the next one or uh, chairs with backs <laughs> is an important part of that. But the thing that I've been very pleased to see, there are people sitting watching the films and they and it was the same in the Tate. It was very, very noticeable in the Turner Prize. You kind of went through the Turner Prize and then suddenly there was this full stop at the end which was always full of people sitting down actually watching the film. And that's what we wanted was it a particular pleasure for you to have this opportunity to curate this work of Duncan Campbell's? Yeah, it was great. I mean, I've really enjoyed working with Duncan. I've curated two exhibitions this year, Isabel Nolan and, and Duncan. And, and I have to say, I was very ably assisted by uh, Karen Sweeney, who did a lot of work with me. But it's, no, it's such a nice boost that during the show, he won the Turner Prize. Because what it has meant is we've seen a completely different audience come and engage with the work. And what then has been very rewarding from that is that we've been getting really great feedback you know the feedback we've had is that people have really gained a lot from that it was great to see how the morning after celebration of a visual artist here to sort of see so much great coverage in the newspapers and a real kind of ownership of it which was fantastic because I think a lot of Duncan's career has been outside of Dublin people have seen him as perhaps quite removed from Ireland but I've sort of really understood 
in working with him how much he is an Irish artist and sees himself absolutely as an Irish artist and so much of his life is still incredibly connected with Ireland. Great boost for everyone, actually. You'll be working with Duncan Campbell, I think, uh, on a piece for the commemoration of the centenary of the 1916 Rising next year, commissioned for, for IMA. Do you have any idea yet what that might be or where you might like it to go? I do, but... It was something we'd been thinking about for this exhibition originally. Duncan doesn't make work quickly um, or easily. And obviously the Turner Prize coming into the mix created an extra pressure of, of time for him. And I you know, very quickly said to him, if this isn't going to work, let's not do it now and not do it right. Let's just take the pressure out of that. Think about something that we have more time to work on that you can really put the time. So we have an initial proposition knowing Duncan and how he works what we end up with could be something completely different there's a long road that he goes through in terms of thinking research and production and that's his road you know I'm delighted that Emma can work with him and support him in that it will be a work based here and coming out of a sort of questioning of some aspects of Irish culture but I I haven't proposed to him a, a thematic of 2016 it's I think um To me, that is the road to cure to a ruin. (laughs) (laughs) Sarah Glennie, director of IMA there. I recently met the artist himself at his studio in Glasgow and Duncan Campbell told me about the significance of his time in Belfast and its impact on the development of his work. When I lived in Belfast, I was on the committee of Catalyst Arts, which is a very formative experience because it gets you to consider what you're doing beyond the studio beyond the actual you know sitting there making what you're doing the it engages you with getting it shown with showing other people's work and uh, for me anyway made it more kind of social experience that you are kind of dealing with working with other people who are straddle these two things that are also they're organizing opportunities in one way but also makers as well so catalyst is kind of artists collective it's a gallery space so we put on shows in that space but also used other spaces there were other events as well like performance events conference events i mean we had this one conference where we just put everyone on a coach and drove them around the north for the weekend kind of a bonding experience and you know as a way of sort of deformalizing the the whole thing my connection to to glasgow really began then because on the committee at the time um was a woman called karen vaughan who she's scottish she'd done her undergraduate in glasgow and then moved to belfast to do do her masters but while she was in glasgow had volunteered at transmission which is another artist run space here so she was really responsible for why Catalyst is as it is like it has this committee structure and uh, sort of evolving so generally people do like a two year um, stint on the committee and then it evolves and at the time I think there was six of us on the committee but I think as a consequence of that that connection it wasn't just the institutional model that she brought over but also there was a lot of exchange between between transmission but also artists working in Glasgow who showed work at Catalysts. And, it, it, you know, at that time it, it was that 
golden generation of Glasgow artists. So it did seem like incredibly exciting, dynamic place. Looking at it from the vantage of Belfast, I'm not saying it wasn't when we got, but it, it, it was. Reality is different on the ground, you know. I'm really interested in the fact that you you were born in 1972 good deal of those early years of mythology, new mythology, had happened by the time you were born. Yet you are drawn towards this landscape, towards telling some of the stories, like something of the story of Bernadette Devlin. And I know that Lilia Doolan has made that wonderful documentary about Bernadette. Or DeLorean and the workers. I mean, it's, it's, I'm really interested in the, the fact that you, you know, this younger person, felt drawn to some of what was happening and had happened in Northern Ireland to, to help make your work. I mean, how important was Willie Doherty in particular in drawing you towards that landscape of, of Belfast and the North? Yeah, I think, I mean, he was definitely one of, the, one of the ingredients that made me decide to switch from NCAD to, to Belfast. I mean, I'd come across him in books in the library, his work, and it wasn't just that, he was kind of engaging with what was going on but also engaging with the representation and some of the absurdity of like claims and counterclaims his work has really endured in that respect for me I mean the fact that it is so nuanced like that like that's sort of looking at things from the vantage of Dublin the reality in, in Belfast was somewhat different. I mean, I have to say, when, when I did move there, I was slightly daunted, actually probably a bit overwhelmed by like the prospect of kind of engaging with this situation, with the political conflict through, through your work. Because, you know, it was prior to the first IRA ceasefire and there was a kind of a, an upsurge, if not in violence in the early 90s. And... These symbols were very important and very often had life or death consequences. The thing that I hadn't really anticipated with what I was saying before about my stint on the committee at the Catalyst Arts, I mean, that was very palpable to me, was this kind of sense of there's a lot of people who are frustrated with the opportunities to show what they were doing, but the sort of eagerness to do something about that, to not wait or uh, maybe what had happened before, which would be just to go elsewhere, but to kind of stay and make a go of it. And I think that was very formative for me. It made it a very easy transition for me moving from Belfast to Glasgow, because I think that's sort of, at least in terms of my experience, has been part of the ethos of the city. There is this um, willingness to do it yourself. There's been a lot of talk about you know, this new generation of artists in Scotland and the people who've come out of the out of Glasgow School of Art, yourself included, and a number of the other nominees for the Turner Prize uh, last year. There, and the sense then of, of that new generation, which is, of course, part of the debate around Scottish independence as well. I mean, have you witnessed that a burgeoning of, of the art scene here in, in the time you've been in Scotland? It's certainly bigger than when I moved here, but I wouldn't say it's it's not like this kind of mushroom that's appeared. I think it's grown more incrementally. I mean, even at the art school, like the course that I did, the MFA, it's a much bigger course now. More graduates, first of all. Studio space actually was a big problem. If you go back 10 years ago, it was very difficult to find a space. It's a lot easier now and actually for me being in this building and the, the sort of renovation that they've done because I find myself a lot just 
front of my laptop. So it's quite warm. It's quite secure. You know, you're not worrying about space getting broken into or the elements coming in, which was a factor. I mean, the independent studios that were there before, I mean, it was ad hoc, very cobbled together sort of space and you were really at the mercy of the elements because there was nothing blocking the wind and the rain driving in. So even in terms of gallery activity, there's a lot more happening than there was. I think probably when I moved here, you didn't literally know everybody, but you would identify people, you would know of them. Whereas now that, you know, it's a lot bigger. I don't think it would be possible to keep up with every single opening that's going on. Like the Modern Institute has opened since uh, Mary Mary, Kendall Klopp. So there there are also galleries that, that represent artists, which um, there weren't when I moved here. Uh, I know you teach a little bit in Goldsmiths in London. Do you see people there, for instance, looking to looking to Glasgow as a potential place to come and and base themselves? I think London is very economically it's really difficult. And, you know, they're, they're very curious about what Glasgow's like and they're not just idly inquiring. I think that there's definitely something behind it. They're definitely considering it. But And likewise, I think there, there are other places like, I mean, Newcastle. There's a lot of things coalescing there, Nottingham, places like that. You know, at the bottom of the reason why Glasgow, you know, it's sort of engendered the sort of art that it has. There's a lot of very basic economics at the bottom of that. I think that especially relative to London, it's, it's always been a far cheaper place to live, particularly in that crucial period when you just graduate. You just have much more space and time to be able to do what you do. Was it a good place to be a student? You know, you did, you did a master's here and because the, the, the art school was badly damaged in that fire last year, that wonderful building, Charles Rennie, Macintosh's building. People who've gone there seem to really liked it. The one thing about Glasgow, it, it's always attracted really good students. And I mean, it, this sounds like I'm, I'm being a bit disparaging about the institution itself. But I think that's the thing that I got most from was just the people who, who I was on the course with. And there's probably a nucleus of people I studied on. the I was on the MFA with that would be my peers to this day and people who I would talk about what they do and they would... Likewise, they would talk about what I do. The fire that you mentioned was a real... Um, like anybody who who went to the art school, the way they talked about it, it was like they were talking about a person. It was just really soul-destroying. And it does kind of... Like when I studied at the art school, we were in a scruffy annex over the hill. So we did... We used the Mac building a bit. Like we used the lecture theatre... The Macintosh Library was more or less off limits. Um, you had to have a very particular reason to be in there. But nevertheless, like as soon as that happened, it was just it was really devastating. And I think it was a kind of reminder of the. It's not just important as a former student, but also like in terms of the city. I think it's very important in terms of the the dynamics of what happens here. You mentioned the library there in in the in the Macintosh building, uh, and of course libraries can be really vital to the work of, of particular artists and I think for yourself some of the work you do is, is in another library here in the, in the Mitchell Library in the city. What's that like? The Mitchell I think it's like built in the late 19th century but then it had, had an extension in the late 70s early 80s uh, which is the part of the building 
that I'm very fond of. It's recently been listed, which I'm really glad about, but they have them, uh, including the kind of interior fixtures and fittings, but they have a carpet in it, which is a bit like the carpet in The Shining. Um, and uh, But it, it's a very well-designed building in terms of how the light comes into the building, like so that it's very thoughtful in terms of direct light and that. But I've used the Mitchell as either, you know, using the material from the library, but actually more as a workspace i find that for whatever reason i just find it a very productive place to be a lot of the films that i make start off in there's a, a big lead in of, of research and then usually this writing that, that forms part of the film and i find the mitchell the best place for me to do that but, you know in my studio as you can see around it is a bit of a bit like a bomb hit it but i think that's i find that's the kind of deal here is why it's quite useful is that I can I don't have to tidy up at the end of the day but in terms of sitting here reading or writing I think I would just the messes are just a bit too chaotic lots of empty coffee cups <laughs> yeah. yeah well that's the that's the real fundamental building block of um, my practice is coffee <laughs> It depends film to film, but the last film that made, or the last longer film that made it for others, quite, like a lot of it actually was shot in here because it was a lot of the footage of objects. Um, so we just cleared the space out and set it up as um, for high-key, low-key lighting. And uh, actually a lot of the, the objects that were in the film are still here. They're kind of stored in the corner there. Maybe rewinding a bit from that stage, that's the actual the stuff that's made it to the film but I do have a, a bit of a policy of never like if I have an idea about how I want to do something I'll always try it out first but I, I do a lot of that in my studio for the show at Emma I think it was quite important to consider the space and to, to sit with that for a while so there are models of like scale models of the, the upper and lower space in Emma I mean that was the really important thing about that show was how that configuration came together the flow you know from one film to another and trying to make it as easy an experience as possible for people who are coming you know because it's a bit of an ask if you put the films all back to back I mean it's like a double feature film which is you know when people are going to see it to a gallery or to a museum they're maybe not expecting to spend that much time I mean, there are other things that I also make aside from films, like objects. Uh, I make um, printed work as well. So that's a bit more basic, sitting at my desk kind of stuff. Uh, a lot of it is actually just for storage as well. There's um, equipment that I've accumulated over the years, which needs to go somewhere. I do have a, an occasional purge, but and actually, believe it or not, this is fairly minimal. <laughs> and books, I mean, literature almost led you towards visual art. I mean, one senses that in in the scripts for some of the films. I mean, the scripts are very precise and they're really worked. I mean, I think in a way that's why I started making films was because throughout my undergraduate and then when I was on the MFA here, I had always written in various different forms, but I never really found a a way that I could kind of reconcile that in, in what I was doing, like a two-dimensional work or presenting text as material. So the first film that I made, there was just something that made sense with that. And then I started to make connections with, I, I mean, other artist films in particular. And, and it just snowballed from there. 
it's part of my mental architecture. I mean, I think like encounters with art or probably literature was the first thing. It was the first thing that I could kind of get into. It was the first thing that I could kind of make, make sense of. And I guess that's kind of stayed with me. At, at times it does feel like a little bit between two stools and even in terms of where it's shown because generally speaking the films have another life like they're shown a lot at film festivals so mm-hmm. there is this crossover but I think that's it can be a productive thing actually you know that you can't very neatly pin it down I'm fr- a pretty slow reader so I think it's something that I've, all, I've had to kind of make time to do like to I can't just do it uh, like condense it in the evening or you know it's not just reading there's a lot of not so much with the last film I made because I shot most of that myself but previous films the ones that have a lot of archival material that does take up a lot of time just first of all tracking down the material but then also you literally have to sit the length of all the material that you have not just once but maybe twice and until the connections start to get made but I think probably at that stage I mean it, you know if if I was to just do that I think it would be overwhelming so try and mix it up a bit so that's probably the part of the process when I do read most you know looking at Arbeit looking at the four pieces in in Emma DeLorean and Belfast Bernadette Devlin McAlisky the her humanity and her power the individual as as individual in the face of politics and power I mean when did you begin to focus on on the the individual within the bigger story i mean if you take bernadette actually bernadette the film wasn't going to be about bernadette devlin it was going to be about people's democracy the group that she was involved with at queen's university because when i went to have a look at the archival material that was available about people's democracy i mean first of all she was very prominent in that I had an idea that I knew who she was, but actually it was a sort of a revelation encountering her again. The idea of the, these things being representations of her and also how even at the time that, the, that a lot of this material was produced, like if you go back to the late 60s, or early 70s, how contested that was and how contested it was with her and the sort of irritation of being misrepresented and being misconstrued. It's not just a kind of media studies exercise. I think that the period of time, the sort of possibilities, and once you go into the 70s, how polarised things became and how centralised power became, even in terms of Republican movement and unionism and loyalism, when you go back to that period, the kind of possibilities and nuances that were present, I was really interested in that as well. So there was all sorts of things that coalesced. I think she kind of emerged, you know, very early on, actually. I mean, generally speaking, the germ of, of the next film is, is in, because Make New John was the, not immediately next, but the, the, I made one film in between that. But there was some germ of that idea in the research for, for making Bernadette. Again, originally that film, I was very interested in the car as as being almost like this very fetishized very mythologized object extraordinary doors that open up like wings that was the difficult thing with that was you know where to stop with that it's it's really epic it just reverberates out and out and out but then of course uh, john delorean as the car's creator obviously he he was going to feature but i found him 
interesting in, in a way as a kind of anti-Bernadette kind of figure. And then I think the germ of, of Arbite was in that film as well, because I think the if you go back to the original premise of the film being about the car and uh, being about this object, you know, all the kind of mythology that was projected onto that. But there's this idea about value and producing the car in Belfast and, and the sort of expectation that that created, that this was somehow going to stop, you know, young men in West Belfast being radicalised. And and I think that, like, so by, I, I was quite set on making a film which didn't have a person at the centre of it and it was just going to be about money. Started thinking about specific types of money. I, I was reading a lot about the Deutschmark and in reading that, Hans Tietmeyer is a figure that, particularly in post-war German economics, he just keeps appearing at the Werkschaft under the kind of tiger economy of Germany immediately after the Second World War and then the kind of stagnation in the 70s, 80s and the, the the switch from the SDP to the CDU, centre-left to centre-right, German monetary unification. He was the head of the Bundesbank and then the transition to the euro, the European Central Bank being modelled on the Bundesbank and the influence that he brought to bear on that. So he kind of took over again in that. And, but a lot of the ideas about value then carry on to it for others as well so there are threads that run through these things within all that like it is a little bit of an improvisation I think there's maybe things that didn't happen which I'm trying to work out in the film that I make after but I you know there I think with every film that I've made where I've started and what they've ended up being are generally two quite different things um, I'm interested as well in, in your use of black and white, in part taking from old images, but then where when it moves into colour, maybe briefly, or in Arbeit when the smoke, when it all disintegrates a little and the smoke comes out, or when you fracture things, you know, when, when it stops and the, the screen is blank for a little bit. And it, it's somehow almost about nothing being fixed mm-hmm. and nothing finishing. And nothing, almost there being no absolutely reliable narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think it's definitely an element to it. I mean, I think in terms of the black and white uh, colour, I think there's, there's generally some kind of aesthetic reference for that. So, I mean, with it for others, the first part, which is shot in black and white, the aesthetic reference for that was uh, Chris Marker and Anne Renee's film, uh, Statues Also Die. So, what I was interested in was sort of reprising that, but also looking at, at the film as, a, as an object as well. One of the very formative influences on me in terms of the films that I make is um, structuralist film, like almost remorseless interrogation of the material of the film and that, and the meaning being kind of extrapolated from that, but also the the idea that you wouldn't be able to rely on that, that there's no truth kind of material. So I think that the image of Helmut Schlesinger which burns in Arbeit, that's a direct reference to um, Hollis Frampton's film Nostalgia the material is very important um, not, not being this kind of portal on reality that it is, it's contingent and it's produced under certain circumstances and perhaps with certain prejudices and um, I think it's very important, particularly looking at historical subjects to 
to be quite explicit about that. I'm not removed from that either, actually. I think that, you know, I'm another sort of prism that this is being through, but to try and kind of make that as explicit as possible. There's also at times a strain of humour running through the work in referencing Andy Warhol and and your own name almost in one breath with the Campbell soup tin and and again the value of things. I mean, it's is there a certain subversion in that glint of humour that shines through the work? Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that like it's maybe more improvised, but like there's certain material. I mean, for example, with material of Bernadette Devlin Kalisky. I mean I think she's in, she's incredibly funny I think her, in terms of her timing so that's sort of present in the material anyway but I, you know in, in terms of it for others I think it was more the sort of absurdity of some of these things and I mean that particular section of film I was looking at Marx's Capital but probably through the prism of some notes that Sergei Eisenstein had made. He he was in the process of thinking about making a film of Capital, but he was it really kind of bedeviled him. It was like particularly the certain sections in that in that book, particularly about fetishism, commodity fetishism. I I found some of his frustration, but also some of the ideas, sort of aesthetic ideas to hang these concepts on, were incredibly funny. That's probably where some of that came through as a an audience or as a punter like going to see things i do really appreciate the value of humor in terms of keeping you engaged and that it'll keep you kind of going along with the work i was struck as well by the, the use of dance in it for others and the beauty of that and you're clearly not afraid to bring in other art forms and to use them in in unexpected ways but also to let us see the potential of that and the potential of beauty to illuminate things that maybe we don't always think of as beautiful yeah i mean i think that like going back to formative influence on me i suppose like the documentary strand there's a filmmaker you might be familiar with john t davis and i i remember seeing his films for the first time most artists who make films that are kind of engaged with an idea of documentary or use archival material have an experience like this but it was a real liberation like how he approached his subjects and one of one of the most important films for me of his is uh, dust on the bible and i mean first of all in terms of the, the treatment of of the subject in that film of street corner preachers and the shorthand name was just to associate that with political unionism and redneck mentality that went with that and it it's just so easy to get the boot in but he didn't do that and like how tenderly he, he treated that subject and I just think it's a really beautiful film and it really it had a it had a very big effect on me seeing that film and I think that's something that's kind of stayed with me like once you realise that the conventions in documentary aren't fixed like that and actually making Make It New John was very interesting from you know another perspective on that because there's so say the first piece of archival material comes from the 1940s so you have from the 1940s until the early 80s the kind of standard idea of, of documentary form how much it evolves over that period of time so if you go back to the 40s I mean even if there are real people who appear in the documentaries they are kind of told where to stand and what to say 
probably to do a lot with the technology, but the the sort of verite notion of documentary is a reasonably relatively recent phenomenon. And I think when you see that, when you see the form changing, it just frees things up a bit. And I was very interested in doing something with, with Michael Clark. And we talked about this and we nearly got it together like before that this was the thing that we finally came together so it's a sort of a meeting of our two the technical choreography i mean that's i'm i'm completely beyond my ken but i mean in terms of the aesthetic of that i that's something that i've been kind of consistently interested in is the kind of statistical animation and this the aesthetic of that so the god's eye view of the camera in that and also the very stark black and white pared down props of you know just using this stool and the banners but well, it, it was very striking for me that there's a line about currency represents what a country would like to be and to a certain extent what it is what it aspires to be and i was thinking about that as, as well about the currency of art what art represents what it and how it's valued in a very subtle way it seems to me you're constantly probing at how we see and how we value mm. I mean in terms of art like the currency of art which is something that I did look at uh, at the end of it for others obviously art and its status as being a commodity which is kind of bought and sold and the, just the numerical values put on art I think it, it's an important part of how people appreciate it how they value it I think the thing about art is that it's difficult to understand that the attraction of numerical values is very simple it's very kind of tangible, you know, it's, almost, it's, it's much easier to grasp than some of the cultural uh, ramifications of the work. And it, it's obviously an area you have to be au fait with as well, this, this kind of business end of it, where you, when you're using images, archival clips, you're presumably having to pay all the time, negotiate and probably pay over and over as, as films are shown. You as an artist must also be a manager an administrator of your, of your own work as well, people often forget that artists don't just make the work whether it's film or painting or photography or so often they have to engage in a very real way in the in this world of of economics and and administration yeah if you look at art production now i mean it's a very common thing that the maker won't actually fabricate what they're doing it's just they, they will come up with the idea and then bring it to somebody else who will make the work for them so and i think that's been the case for decades now but i mean i mean for me like that the kind of engagement with that side of like the archival materials it's been a bit of an evolution like the first film that i made kind of in earnest that used archival material i worked with two archives in belfast belfast exposed and community visual images and they they were just interested in what I was doing and so I only paid for the kind of material costs of scanning negatives and things like that which is an incredible deal to to get from them you know if you go through particularly television networks you know you do have to pay it's a it's an expensive habit but I I mean I have to say like when I made Make New John became very friendly with this man Robert Lamrock he ran the archive at UTV he has a DeLorean car he's a big collector of of ephemera and 
he bought me into the archive, which was the first time because usually it's over the phone and you order tapes and that. So actually being in the archive and you kind of appreciate how much to maintain this material. Oh, like and it is like almost like this museum of technology of pneumatic tapes and types of digital technology that I hadn't heard of. But it's like the constant migration of that and trying to maintain the original quality of the material. It did give me an insight into why this material costs what it does, just in terms of actually being able to preserve it. And but also the value of, like, you know, in that situation has happened uh, with Robert in particular, um, the value of somebody who's that familiar with with the subject, because without Robert, the film would have been a very different film and the sort of things that even beyond the UTV archive that he was able to give me access to, you know, if I hadn't have met him. Thinking about the power of image, it struck me watching both, especially Arbeit and It for Others, that how we see is is sometimes altered by events. So that, for instance, there were images of, of, of Paris, uh, the Eiffel Tower being struck by lightning, uh, street scenes that remind one of France's colonial past in North Africa and those became different watching them in the in the last couple of weeks in light of the, the killings at Charlie Hebdo and at the Jewish supermarket and it seems that all the time and this is I think in one of the films they talk about uh, art and history and the point almost where art becomes history and where they they coincide in a way everything is constantly changing anyway and how we see is changed even images that are older are transformed by by current events or, or the changes in in, in political and, and social life. Yeah, I mean, I think that I was very aware of, of those images of Paris, like coming at the point that they're like about three quarters of the way through the film um, in relation to the first part of the film, which deals with art from West Africa. In terms of a perspective on Paris, about Paris being the centre, and there, there is a lot of, what's the best way to put it, um, there's a, a legacy coming from that that people want to, to use and to kind of take on, but, you know, it's sort of an administrative centre of, of French power and a great deal of animosity at the same time because the images in the, it that appear in the film um, are quite saccharine, that kind of idea of, of Paris as being a city of love and which sort of belies that. Two qualities that are mentioned in Arbeit, melancholia and transitoriness mm. so I'm taken by those and I was thinking that in a, in a sense there's a glimmer of both those qualities through through your work in the aesthetic somehow and what seems to be permanent like the you know the, the dream of the DeLorean plant coming to West Belfast and of course it's utterly transitory and maybe inevitably from that is a sense of a melancholia I mean are you aware of those qualities around what you do or are they simply part of a, of a of a larger landscape anyway well i think i mean specifically to do with our bite the, the kind of tone of that uh, the intention was to not have a person at, at the center of, of the narrative of this but even with that i mean a figure like hans tietmeyer who is in a way like incredibly powerful like this what's the french word for eminence grise like this sort of power behind behind the power these very powerful civil servants who in a way are more powerful than 
most politicians because they are the continuity between one government to another and they and they're stop the whole thing unraveling in a way at the same time like in terms of Hans Tietmeyer's day to day like what he does is decides to raise interest a fraction or you know so it's it isn't like it's not dramatic um in that sense so that was part of the challenge of what to do with that and the one thing that I found with that was central bankers are generally they don't talk about themselves but they talk about other central bankers so they, these um uh, sort of speeches laudatios so um and i kind of came across a number of these about hans tietmeyer like by say john claude trichet and there's a lot of economics like a lot of why what they did was very important in the middle so that's the bulk of the speech but generally there's a little preamble which is quite matey and you know sentimental and you know a few puns at their at their expense that's really where the tone of the narrative came from from that but it did seem to be quite melancholy i mean i'm not saying anything about german sense of humor but but you know i I mean in more generally i think it probably is opposite because i think you know in terms of what you were saying about the delorean factory if you look at the kind of broader economic context of that, I mean, DeLorean was very much against the grain, actually. There was a there was a very well-established, even under the Labour government, very well-established process of deindustrialization happening at that stage. And it really came when a lot of firms that were manufacturing in the north were moving out to Senegal or to the Far East. And I think that that inevitably leaves a kind of melancholia because you're talking about a whole way of life going i think that that's kind of part of that process there's a line in it, it for others where the narrator says maybe all art is about working through and and presenting you know your own vision of the world and you know are are you trying to articulate a particular view your view of of living and and some of the constructs within which we must live well, uh, first of all, that's uh, Allen Ginsberg. It's directly from one of his postcards. Um, I mean, in a way, I think it's kind of inevitable. I think the, uh, that's from it for others, and the sort of the starting point to that film is uh, Chris Marker and Alan Renee's statues also die. But I, th- I mean, Chris Marker's a filmmaker that I greatly admire. One of the things that I really appreciate about his films is that they do seem kind of open-ended. So if you take, like, Statues Also Die being about objects from West Africa, and it does, I mean, actually, unusually for, for one of Marker's films, it's a collaboration, obviously, but it, sort, it does end optimistically. It ends with this kind of promise of reconciliation like a, between African and Western culture, but, you know, on the basis of some sort of equality, not that Western cultural norms and values will just completely be accepted as as some as tantamount to some kind of universal values and just trump everything else but then if you look like uh like sans soleil where he returns to west africa to guinea guinea bissau and he's looking at amilcar cabral and um the movement for independence in, in guinea bissau and um 
I mean, you know, in a way it was a sort of an exemplary movement, but how it kind of unraveled after his assassination in particular and um, the sort of... Cynicism would be too strong a word, but the kind of pragmatism or realism about... Unfortunately, it does apply to a lot of post-independence African countries that power became incredibly centralised and basically what, what happened was that one elite replaced another indigenous elite replaced the colonial elite so if you take from that from statues also died to sans soleil i think if he had made a film like 10 years later that revisited he would have changed again but uh, and i really appreciate that that this is not some kind of definitive or conclusive that this is part of a process of kind of understanding these situations and that they're fluid and that things change so when you revisit a place, it's probably natural and right that your opinion will have changed about that. And I think that's something that I'm very mindful with the films that I make. I feel a particular obligation when it's a film about a person. I think there are very severe limits on the extent to which you can know somebody like that, particularly through already mediated material like that. So I do feel a particular obligation to to sort of make my own limitations apparent or manifest in the films that I make. Were you pleased to win the, the Turner Prize? Yes, obviously I was. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the pieces of advice that I was given, I know people who've, who've been involved with it, who've been nominated and who've won it in the past... The one piece of advice that they gave me to was don't read the press about it, which I did actually manage to do. I stuck to that, and I think it made it a much more immediate experience. So, like, the sort of feedback that I was getting was from people that I would meet or be standing in front of. But so, but I think, like, the, I mean, even on t- in terms of the people who were on that jury, I mean, I do have a an enormous amount of respect for them and it it's very like it's a huge shot in the arm for me for them to decide like it is sort of bittersweet because I know I knew everybody uh, like all the other nominees um have a great amount of respect for what they do I do remember that point where we'd finished the install and then it was okay we're in competition with you with each other and it, there was something felt quite unnatural about that but I knew what I was getting into and that sort of endorsement is um, it does give you heart in a way because I do feel like a little bit like you know I'm kind of reinventing the wheel every time there, there's no there hasn't been one go you know in terms of source to get the means to produce a film and also I end up producing the films largely myself which is don't have come across as moaning about my lot but in terms of kind of keep that creative headspace while all this other stuff stuff's going on but i mean i think probably vindication would be too strong a way of, of putting it i think um because it does feel like you know things have been sort of building more incrementally i mean for example the show with emma i mean that's been in the offing like for a couple of years now you know which is psychically kind of very important obviously there's the hometown factor but like Emma, it was maybe open a couple of years, like the, when I was at NCAD. So it was like that 
all of a sudden moving from the library and you were actually able to encounter this stuff in the flesh it was really important so it, it's really gratifying for me to, to have a show on there but I, I mean I think the thing like last year was I wasn't actually in my studio other than prepared shows but the thing that I've missed actually has been being in my studio and that's what I'm trying to get back to now I think the Turner Prize does change changes people's perception it might open a few doors but I'm kind of eager to to get back to making work and you know I do feel like I've got more to say Artist Duncan Campbell talking to me at his studio in Glasgow. His Turner Prize winning piece, It for Others, and three of his other films can be seen at IMA in Dublin until the end of March. Next week, the story of the landmark Irish publishing house, Sarshale Augustil. Join me then. Till then, good night. Arts Tonight was presented by Vincent Woods and produced by Cleon and the Onloon.